Hey, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Woodstock City Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download the Woodstock City Church app where you can access all of our recent message content as well as find out about what's going on around Woodstock City Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. You've had your fair share of heart-to-heart conversations in your life, I'm sure, in a relationship, maybe at work with a, with a friend, right? A heart-to-heart is when you just get real. A heart-to-heart is where you get honest. A heart-to-heart is kind of where you share the last you know, 1% of what you're thinking, of what you're feeling. A heart-to-heart is where you, you, you get on the same page. You kind of stop everything and say, we can't keep going like this. Let's work through some things. Let's figure things out. Um, you know, sometimes they feel heavier than other times. We, we've all been there. But for, in, in practical terms, and in practical terms, for all of you that are just like, no, I don't, I don't, <clears throat> I don't do heart-to-hearts. Friend, in practical terms, here's what, here's what a heart-to-heart is. It's, it's when you communicate intention, um, hey, here's what, here, here's, here's what my heart, here's what's really going on here. Here's what I want to do. Here, here's where I want to go. A heart to heart is when you clarify any misunderstanding. You know, hey, we've been missing each other. Hey, we're kind of on, on different pages. Let's figure this out. And a heart to heart is also where you challenge wrong thinking. And so over the next few weeks, um, what we're going to do is we're going to have one big heart to heart, but not my heart to yours or your heart's to your neighbors, because that would be weird. <clears throat> one big heart to heart, God's heart to ours. Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at three parables that Jesus shares in the gospel of Luke that paint a picture of God's heart for people. In these three parables, um, whether you grew up in church or not, you've heard these parables, I'm, I'm sure. They are maybe his most famous and most recognized parables um, that, he, that he ever shared. And they happen sequentially. They happen back to back to back all in one chapter. And in these three parables, Jesus communicates the intention with which he came. He, he clarifies any misunderstanding about the good news of the gospel that he came to bring. And he challenges, as we're going to see today and over the course of this series, wrong thinking about the very heart of God and what it means to live it out. If you're a follower, Jesus. And, and if we engage with these three parables over the next few weeks, as we kind of work our way through them openly, and honestly, I think what we'll find, if you're a Jesus follower, you'll be forced to ask some questions. And if you're not a Jesus follower, you might be compelled to ask some questions. Like, am I missing who God really is? Is my heart, is my heart aligned with the very heart of God? Is my life an accurate reflection of who God really is? And this conversation is important because look, to miss the heart of God to miss the heart of God is to miss the heart of the Christian faith. To, to miss the heart of God is to miss the mission that you and I have been called in to. To miss the heart of God is to miss the heart of all of it. So <clears throat> Jesus, Jesus shares three parables that paint a picture of God's heart 
for us. But before we get into the parables, Luke tells at the very beginning of Luke chapter 15, he shares and he lets us know why Jesus shares these parables at all. Like what, what, what led to this, you know, like what, what triggered these parables and Luke makes it clear and understanding the tension of these first two verses before we get into the parables is paramount to understanding and having an appreciation for not only the parables that Jesus shared, but having a full understanding of God's heart. And so Luke sets it up like this in Luke chapter 15, verse one. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So right off the bat, right off the bat, um, we have a picture that we see over and over and over again in the gospels, but it is paramount to understand this tension in order to understand what Jesus is going to do in the following three parables. What we have here is again, what you see throughout the gospels, the irreligious loved Jesus and the religious hated Jesus. The irreligious couldn't get enough of him and the religious leaders of the day hated that those on the outside of religion, those on the outside of faith, right? The sinners, the task collectors, as Luke documents for us, get this. They found the heart of Jesus compelling. That those that found themselves on the outside of faith, on the outside of religion, they actually wanted to hear the teachings of Jesus. <clears throat> they had their curiosity piqued by Jesus. Even in some cases, for some, they began to open their hearts to a side of religion they had never known because of Jesus. And, and, if, and, if, and if you're not a Jesus follower, if you've ever been hurt by the church, if you've ever felt like you're on the outside of the church because of the way that you've been treated, you, you get this, that those on the outside of religion, when they saw Jesus, get a picture of this in your head. Um, when they saw Jesus, they weren't annoyed. They weren't fearful. And they didn't feel shame. No, they... <laughs> They probably cracked a smile, felt safe, maybe even believed that this teacher was for them. And this would have been so radically different from what they would have experienced from the teachers of the law and the Pharisees of the day. Because the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they used religion, they used religion, and we've talked about this before, as a system of exclusion, as a system of exclusion. They use religion to draw a line in the sand to say, you belong and you don't. You belong in the family of God and you don't. Throughout the gospels, you never see those on the outside of faith. You never see tax collectors. You never see sinners gathering around Pharisees and the teachers of the law wanting to hear what they had to say. Why? Because they were constantly judged, condemned, belittled, shamed, and outcasted by them. And, and, and I can't paint a, 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 a more picture, a, a broader picture, uh, more imagery than this, that, that the Pharisees, they found Jesus and the way that he acted towards tax collectors and sinners repulsive because they found sinners and tax collectors to be repulsive. They muttered that this man welcomes sinners and each of them. This man, 
it's, it's derogatory. Like that one, he's not even worthy of a name. He's not worthy of a title. Like this man, that one, that guy, that person over there. He welcomes sinners. That word welcomes, it literally means to give access to relationally. That one, he gives tax collectors and sinners access to himself. And then he, he dares eat with them. As some of you know, eating with them, eating with someone in the first century, um, it was a mechanism of fellowship and deep connection. You did not just eat with anybody. And what you see in the gospels is that Jesus welcoming and eating with tax collectors and sinners, this was the habit of Jesus. Because as we'll find, it was the very heart of God that he came to put on display. It was such a habit, in fact, that it became a reputation. Earlier, Luke chapter 7, verse 34, you probably heard this phrase, Jesus is quoting what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are saying about him. And he says, the son of man came eating and drinking like the rest of you. The son of man, a title for Jesus that he had. Hey, I've come eating and drinking like everybody else. And yet you say, you tax collectors and uh, you Pharisees, he's quoting them. Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, sinners. <laughs> for the Pharisees, drunkard and glutton, which was a, was, wasn't, wasn't fair, but... They put that on par with being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was on par with who Jesus decided to give relational access to. The irony, a friend of tax collectors and sinners was meant to be derogatory, but for Jesus, it was explanatory of why he came. And so they muttered muttered at this man who dared give relational access, who dared engage with, who dared eat with, who dared make relational bridges and connections to sinners and tax collectors, who dared open his heart to, make a place at the table for tax collectors and sinners. And here we have two categories of people that the religious thought they were better than. Tax collectors, as you know, um, some of you met tax collectors, they were Jewish citizens who collected taxes on behalf of Rome. But because they were backed by the power of Rome, they would often collect more taxes than were necessary, pay Rome and keep the difference for themselves. So they were, they were thought as sellouts of the worst kind. They were stealing from their own people. Now, oftentimes, um, what we know from this group of tax collectors is they, they weren't the chief tax collectors. We, we read about one of them at a, a different version of the gospel, a different time in the gospel of Luke. But um, a chief tax collector was kind of like the boss. These tax collectors, they were the ones doing the dirty work, collecting all the taxes, sitting at the booth, collecting the tariffs. And oftentimes, what we know um, is these tax collectors, again, Jews, stealing from fellow Jews, fell into this profession because they had no other option to make ends meet. So, You got one group that they feel like they're better than, people that are stealing from their own people, understandably so. But then you've got this other group, the sinners. What does that mean, the sinners? Aren't the tax collectors sinners? Why why is it separate? This is so interesting. That in the eyes of the Pharisees, a sinner, this is so fascinating, was a fellow Jew, more than likely, a fellow Jew who believed in the same God as the Pharisees did and believed in the same Mosaic law as the Pharisees did. So why was it the Pharisees classified them as sinners? Why were they outcasted? This is, this is so interesting. This gives you an insight 
into the toxicity of the attitude of the Pharisees. A sinner in the eyes of a Pharisee was someone who didn't practice religion the way the Pharisees thought they should. Same law, same God, but they didn't practice it to the degree. They didn't practice it as good. They didn't live up to the standard that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had made. And so it doesn't matter if you live in the same God and even believe in the same law. You're not doing it as good as us, so you're out. So it's so fascinating. You have two groups of people, the tax collectors and sinners, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. One group they believe to be morally superior to, and then the sinners who they believe to be religiously superior to. Why? Because they obeyed the law of God better. Don't miss this. Their obedience to the law of God, which they would have said was out of their love for God, their obedience to the law of God is what led to the attitude on display. And for you Jesus followers, let's bring this home. It's so easy for us to read this and think, oh my gosh, those Pharisees. How could they? Man, they're so mean, like meaner than my five-year-old. I don't understand. Like, man, if I was there, like, I, man, I'd be, I'd be, Jay, I'd have your back, bro. You know, like, short for Jesus. <clears throat> we seem to think we know what side we'd be on if we were in the time of Jesus, but come on. <clears throat> Let me, let me bring this in for us, for our context. The Bible as we know it did not exist, obviously, in the time of Jesus. But to bring this home, the Pharisees would have been those that did exactly what the Bible said. And it made them think they were better. <clears throat> we often look at the Pharisees and think we could never, but come on. Let me push a little bit. If you've ever, and I'm including myself in this, if you've ever had an inkling of moral superiority or felt better than someone else on the basis of you obey the Bible better, same thing. If you've ever looked down on somebody because of some religious belief that they are less than because of a religious belief, same thing. If you've ever put somebody in a category below the category you're in only because you think you obey God better, even if you do obey God better, same thing. If you've ever thought, come on, I get it. They don't. So distance, there's no place or there's very few places for them. Come on, same Even if you've never extroverted it, even if it's never made its way into one of your Facebook posts, even if you've just thought it, same thing. In the name of religion, all of us that are followers of Jesus are susceptible to missing the very heart of God. Early last year, I went on a golf trip with some of my friends very expensive way to be bad at something. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we went to this, this golf trip to a, a golf course called Sweeten's Cove 
It's in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, and it's this beautiful nine-hole golf course in the valley of, in between Smoky Mountain Mountains. And it used to be this old rundown place, and um, some famous athletes, Peyton Manning, and you know, tennis former tennis superstar Andy Roddick. They invested a bunch of money, and they and they revamped the whole thing. And it is unlike any other golfing experience that you could ever have. Now, for those of you who don't play golf, let me give you a little bit of um, golf culture to help set this up, okay? Um, in golf culture, um, you know, you, depending on what country club you go to or what golf course you play at, like it's, it's very uptight, okay? Like dress code and, you know, you, you, you can only play with four people at a time, right? If you add a fifth, you're going to jail for three to five. Like it's like you don't, you don't, you don't do that. You got to keep it going at a pretty good pace. I know those of you that have spouses that play golf, you can't understand that because they're gone for the whole day for one round, but you're supposed to play at a good pace and, and there's so much pressure and what's your score and make sure you get it right. And depending on again, what course you're at, they tend to be uptight and snooty. It's kind of like more toxic than the Pharisees. Okay. It's not, it's not the healthiest of, of things. There's this pressure to do good or whatever. Embarrassed golf is, you know, bad shots in, in front of people. So there's a little bit of, of golf culture. So here's Sweeten's Cove. And, and when you roll into this place to, to go play, that the manager there kind of gives you a spiel of, of, um, of, of an experience playing with them. And they pride themselves in not having any rules. They want to remove anything that might ruin the game so you can experience the beauty of the game. Like, they don't care how many people you play with. They don't care if you ride. They don't care if you ride a cart. They got nine holes. They don't care in which order you go. You can go in whatever order you want. Their scorecard doesn't have a place to write your score down because they don't want anything to ruin the golf experience. In fact, this is from their words, not mine. They said, we pride ourselves in being the most anti-golf golf course in the country. They got so much flack for not having any rules. They decided to make one. And they said this, it's keep your shirt on. the most anti-golf golf course in the country to strip away all the things that ruin the game so you can experience the beauty of the game. Jesus was the most anti-religious, religious figure the first century had ever seen. And the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law had no idea what to do with him because Jesus showed up and he wanted to shatter their categories built up in the name of religion. And Jesus was uninterested and remains uninterested in a religious system that breeds self-righteousness. Jesus was uninterested and remains to be uninterested in a religious system that creates categories of good and bad. He's uninterested in a religious system where you can earn your way into good favor with God based on behavior. He was the most anti-religious, religious figure the first century had ever Seen. And it is in response to the attitude of the Pharisees that we see in these first couple of verses. I promise you we're going to get to the rest of it. It is into the attitude in response to the attitude of the Pharisees that Jesus tells these next three parables. A heart to heart, if you will. And the sinners and the tax collectors that were there, 
They certainly would have benefited from the message of these parables, but it was triggered by the response and the attitude of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And in these three parables, Jesus will communicate the intention of his ministry, give clarity around the message of the good news of the gospel, and challenges, as we'll see, the thinking of the Pharisees who were missing the very heart of God. So Luke tells us, then Jesus went on in response to this, in response to the muttering, tells these three parables. And what you're going to see is a pattern in each of these three parables. Okay. And you, you probably, you heard these parables, you know this, but you're going to find that something is lost. Something is found. And then there's a celebration. Something is lost. Something is found. And then there is a celebration. So Luke chapter 15, starting in verse four, Jesus tells the first parable. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep till he finds it? Now, this is, you know, um, agrarian society, shepherds, like this would have been common imagery, a common practice for a shepherd at night would have been to count the sheep. And if one was missing, they would know about it. Now, I'm not a shepherd. That's why I wouldn't be sweating one. You know what I mean? I got 99. Nighty night, I'm good. You know what I mean? <clears throat> no, but Jesus asked rhetorically. Of course you'd go find it. You'd go look for it. And again, with a flock of about 100, you'd have junior shepherds, so they'd be there to watch the 99. And the chief shepherd, the main shepherd, he'd go out on a rescue mission, on a search to find the lost sheep. And Jesus says, he doesn't stop till he finds it. Then he goes on and he says, and then when he finds it, when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Let's throw a party. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have some food. You know, we're going to have a pinata. It's going to be sheep shaped and it's going to be, that'd be funny. Think about it. That'd be funny. And we're going to celebrate because the sheep, my sheep that was lost is now found. And a sheep, a very vulnerable animal because they're not very smart. Sheep are, sheep are really dumb animals. Like they would graze their way to starvation by eating in a circle. If they're not being led, they would walk off a cliff. Like they, they're not very smart. They need a shepherd. So a sheep, very vulnerable Coyote, wolf, lamb chops. Like it's not a good position to be in. And so the shepherd, it's one, but it's worth it. He doesn't stop till he finds it. And then, and then remember the Pharisees, not much joy that, that launched these parables, not much joy at the thought of someone on the inside finding their way inside. Then Jesus takes the metaphor outside of just the parable and he brings it in to talk about the character of God. And this would have made, this would have made the Pharisees so uncomfortable. He says in verse seven, and I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. When the lost, when those who are lost unto God repent, turn to God and reestablish relationship, there is more rejoicing in heaven than over 99 sinners who don't need to repent. <clears throat> the Pharisees would have thought, well, Jesus, how'd they get lost? Their fault? Did they, did they fix their issues first? 
Did they, did they give the appropriate sacrifices? Did they become ceremonially clean? To which Jesus would have said, doesn't matter. That's your religion. That's not how I work. I've come to establish something brand new and it starts with relationship. And the irony in this parable, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, there's no such thing as a righteous person that doesn't need to turn to God. Pharisees thought they were. So then Jesus goes on and he tells the next parable and he says, well, then suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully till she finds it? So you got one silver coin, a drachma probably would have been about uh, you know, an average of a day's wage, so not an insignificant amount. Maybe the coins would have been worth all more together than even individually. So there's value there. Jesus is saying, hey, this woman is relentless to find this coin. And Jesus, and, and you get this, especially if you're married, he intentionally uses a woman here because a man would have never found it. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. We are so bad at that. I just did it with frozen chicken nuggets in our freezer a couple nights ago. I would have bet you anything. They weren't in there. They were right there. <clears throat> She's relentless. Doesn't stop. Goes to every measure to find this coin. And then again, lost. Something's found. And then there's rejoicing. When she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors. And together says, rejoice with me. Come celebrate with me. Be glad with me. I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, and he takes it out of the metaphor and into the heart of God, he says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, one sinner who turns to God. What was lost had been found. To which the Pharisees might have been thinking, well, <clears throat> how lost? How bad the sin What's the story? Jesus would have said, well, it doesn't matter. That's your religion. That's not how I work. I've come to introduce something brand new, and it starts with relationship. That what was lost unto God was found. What was relationally disconnected to God, the relationship was restored and it fills the heart of God when it happens. And notice the main characters in, in the parables, in the two parables, it's not the lost sheep or the lost coin. No, no. The main characters are the ones doing the searching and the finding. The main character is the shepherd. The main character is the woman doing the searching and the finding. And in it, we learn about the very heart of God for people. First and foremost, we see that they are the ones that initiate the search. They are the ones that initiate the search. The sheep, coin, and animal that they didn't earn it or achieve the res by result of behavior. The only prerequisite for the search was that something was lost. The only prerequisite for the search was that something was lost, deemed valuable enough to go look for. 
For Jesus, for Jesus, the only prerequisite for his movement towards you and towards me is that we're lost. The only prerequisite isn't earning your way into his good graces. The only prerequisite is being relationally disconnected. Jesus didn't come, was looking for behavior management or just religious activity to look a certain way. He just came to restore a relationship. He initiated when he came down. Did nothing to earn it nor deserve it. The second thing that the main characters do is they show concern for the lost. They show concern for the lost thing. Jesus, the master storyteller, don't miss this. He uses some pretty high percentages, percentages that we'd be good with in just about any area of life. 99 and 90 I'm pretty good with 99 and 90. Jesus is showing us that God's concerned about the one. And I get it too if I take the analogy far enough. You know, I'm getting in the van after Chick-fil-A and I see an empty car seat. I'm not thinking, well, two out of three is not bad. (laughs) Now you show concern. Jesus, we should show concern for the lost. We should sow concern for those relationally disconnected from their heavenly father. We should sow concern for our neighbors that are lost. We should sow concern for our coworkers that don't know they're the love found by way of Jesus. We should show concern for those in our family, in our community. Come on, come on. Jesus followers, we're, we're so good at this. Looking at the outward, looking at the behavior Can I just challenge you? Our hearts should break before our minds judge. Because they're relationally disconnected. And then the main characters are relentless in pursuit, as we're going to see over the next couple of weeks of this series, the lengths that God would go to restore the relational connection with his people has No limits. As we'll see, he gave everything to make it possible. Relentless, extravagant, and as we'll see in weeks two and three, even reckless. Jesus wanted to destroy, shatter our comfortable categories and introduce something bigger, something better, not a religion that created categories, but a relationship that created a new way forward. That the heart of our heavenly father is full. The heart of our heavenly father is overjoyed. Not just when people behave better, but when those that were disconnected and lost unto him are restored relationally. That's where the good stuff is. Those, the religious looked down upon, Jesus unapologetically looked for. It's why he came. Those that the religious wanted to create different spaces for and exclude and keep out, Jesus wanted to bring close. Can I just challenge us? If your version of Christianity 
is a religion that creates categories and you're in a good one at the expense of somebody else, Jesus would say, it's time to lose that religion. And instead, follow me. Join in on my mission. And as a result, cultivate an awareness that you too were once lost. And you didn't earn any different, but God's love made a way anyway. For the Pharisees, and we're going to unpack this more. I just want to set this up this week. The Pharisees, for them, you could behave your way in, which meant you could behave your way out. Repent, turn to God, figure it out, and then there's grace until you mess up again. But for God, it starts with relationship. It starts with being relationally connected. Grace, grace, unconditional love is the catalyst to the repentance. It's the catalyst to the turning. And that new relationship is the vehicle for the transformation. Jesus would have told the Pharisees and He's telling us, look, I came to seek the lost. So should you. I came to seek the lost. I came to seek those relationally disconnected. So should you. That's why our mission here, our mission in all of our churches, is to inspire people to follow Jesus. Everything we do, every program we have, every service we have, every initiative we create, every group we launch, everything that we do is to inspire people to follow Jesus. So you should inspire people to follow Jesus, to love people to Jesus, to tell people about Jesus, to invite them to Jesus, to care people in the name of Jesus, to listen in the name of Jesus, to seek out and build relationships with in the name of Jesus. Let us not be a church and a group of Jesus followers that let religion get in the way. Jesus didn't. And this is not some watered down version of faith. It's the very heart of God, not being afraid of the messy middle. Because that's what life is. It's a lot of messy middle trying to figure it out. And the Pharisees, and come on, for us, they were so afraid to give an inch because of their religion. Yet we follow a savior that held nothing back and gave everything in his life to make a way. Come on. The call, the challenge is to live on mission, to show, to share, to love and to get people to Jesus and then let him take it from there. If anything in the name of religion gets in the way of that pursuit, you've missed it. I've missed it and we've missed it. There's too much at stake. There's too much at stake to miss that. There's too much at stake to misrepresent the heart of our God who came close in order to save, who came close in order to set free, who came close in order to forgive, who came close to be connected relationally, who came close to give us access to himself. Who are we as the followers (laughs) to do any different? I've come to seek the lost. So should you. Jesus 
the most anti-religious, religious figure the world has ever seen. And when you strip away the system and the religious activity, you're left with the beauty of a relationship where there's space for grace, where the mercies are new every day, and there's a transforming power. But it starts, it starts with being connected relationally to the one that came for us, for you, for me, and for everybody else. And for those of you that aren't followers of Jesus, if anything else about the heart of God has ever been communicated to you, I'm sorry. But Jesus, not me, not us, Jesus makes it abundantly clear. It starts with a relationship being restored. And then Jesus tells those first two parables, and then he gets to the last one. Kind of brings everything together. He says, there were a man with two sons. And the implications of this third parable are far and wide for those of you that follow Jesus and for those of you that don't. And that is where we'll pick up the conversation next week. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the model of Jesus. And uh, thank you. Thank you that you're look, not looking down with a, a scorecard. You're not looking down with a number of merits and demerits and the scales. Your heart is just to find those that are lost. So I pray, Lord, for the follower of Jesus. Would you challenge us with that thought? Would you challenge us with the reality that you're not interested in just meaningless religious activity? You're, you want our hearts to break for those that don't know you yet. I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate a sensitivity inside of all of us for our need for Jesus. And I pray that we would be a group of people whose hearts would break before our minds would judge. And for those wondering, asking, curiously, inquiring about the heart of Jesus and your heart, I pray today that they'd be um, illuminated to the beauty of who you are and the true character of how you love. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.